Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for each person that you've drawn here, divinely by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that nothing happens by chance. Lord, we ask you to be with our kids, Lord, as they go and minister in the convalescent home, and also for the children that are here, that, Lord, you would use the teachers to minister your truths to them. And, Father, we pray that you would be our teacher this morning, that, Lord, through your word, Lord, that we would be drawn nearer to you, and, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive communion and for the agape feast afterward, Lord. We just ask you bless this entire time that you would inhabit it, Lord, and it would be for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. I want to just say, I know most of you know this, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. How many of you guys know the story of the candy cane? Raise your hand. Okay, so there's some of you that don't. You know, the sad part is that a lot of times, and this is a great witnessing tool, and you might not know that, but the candy cane was created by a Christian man who wanted to create a candy that would glorify and honor Jesus Christ at Christmas time. And so what he did was he took the candy and he made it of a hard white substance to represent the fact that Jesus Christ is the rock upon which we stand. He made it in the letter J for Jesus, and then when turned upside down, that it would be like a shepherd's crook, the shepherds who Jesus, the, the angels appeared to to announce his birth. We also know that he took one, they took one thick red stripe to represent the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that through his shed blood we've been born again and through that we're saved. And then there's three small stripes on most candy canes, which represents the fact that through his stripes we are healed. So maybe you never knew that about a candy cane. Maybe you thought it had something to do with Santa Claus. It doesn't. This is a great witnessing tool. I encourage you, you see someone with one of these in their hand, maybe take some to work or take some to school and just tell people, hey, do you know what the candy cane's about? Great opportunity to share Jesus with people. Good stuff. Well, this morning, John chapter 2, as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, and we've talked about the fact that John is the gospel writer that emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ. While Matthew emphasized the fact that he's the Messiah and pointed to all the Old Testament prophecy, and Mark that he's the suffering servant, and Luke that he's the son of man, that here John emphasizes the fact that he is the perfect son of God. We saw last week in John chapter 1, the title of the message was, Who is Jesus? And we know that Jesus is God. And there are many names or many titles given to him that reflect the fact that he's God. He's called the Word, the Light, the Only Begotten of the Father, Grace and Truth, the Declaration of God. We saw last week that he's the Lamb of God, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies of the lambs that were slain. It all pointed to Jesus Christ. We also saw that he's the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Son of Man, all of this in John chapter 1. We saw that John the Baptist was his forerunner, the one that went before him, the fulfillment of prophecy that made straight the path of the coming Messiah. And again, Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies pointing to the Messiah. Now sadly, the religious leaders, though Jesus came in front of them, even though John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they should have understood it, they missed him. But as we saw last week, it was common men who received him. While the super religious who thought they already had it all nailed, who thought they knew the answers, who were self-righteous in and of themselves, they missed Jesus. But the common men, the fishermen, and Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree, they did not miss the Messiah. And what I love about last week is not only did they give their life to the Lord, but then they became contagious. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more this morning. 
So throughout the Gospel of John, we'll continue to see the emphasis on the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God. But in chapter 2, we're going to begin to see some of his actions. And through his actions, we're going to see that not only is he God, and, and we'll know that, we'll see some more of that, but at the same time, we're going to see why he came. So this morning, we're going to see Jesus perform his first miracle. He's going to turn water into wine at a wedding. We're going to see him cleanse the temple, judging the religious hypocrites. We're going to see him predict his own resurrection, and we're going to see the true, that he sees the true hearts of men, seeing solely the signs and wonders those that the men sought after. So again, the next few weeks as we move on through chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, we're not only going to see his deity, but we're going to see why he came. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 2, and watch as Jesus performs his very first miracle. And like all the other signs that will follow, it will, it will show us His divine powers. So look at verse 1. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, third day means three days since He called Nathanael. Okay, three days later. You saw in John chapter 1 that four days transpired. The first four days of Jesus' public ministry. So three days later would bring us to the seventh day. And it's not by chance in the Bible, because nothing is by chance in the Bible, that on the seventh day, where's our Savior? He's at a wedding. And I love that because it points to the fact that there's a seventh day coming for us. The Bible says that a a day is to a thousand years as a thousand years is to a day. There was six years of creation. On the seventh day, our Master, our Savior, our God rested. And we know that we've lived roughly, the world's roughly 6,000 years old. And so we know that, you guess what? We're about to enter into that Sabbath rest, that millennial reign with our Father, when we're going to be in heaven with Him. And you know what? He's going to come to earth and rule and reign with us here after the seven-year tribulation when we're in heaven with him. And so he's at a wedding, and it's at a wedding that he performs his first miracle, and that's not by chance either. You know, God, the Word of God talks more about marriage than it does the church. And sadly, one of the things that Satan attacks most is our marriages. Because if he can undo our marriages, he can undo the church. And so we see here that Jesus not only believed in marriage, but he attended this wedding and he performs his first miracle at a wedding. And you know, we need to have a greater sanctity for marriage in this world today. We need to, you know what, I praise God that the Lord was at this wedding. And you know what, we need to invite him to our weddings today as well. Now, the wedding is a picture, as we talked about this before, of Christ and the church. And I'm not going to take too much time, but real quickly, in Jewish days, the way the wedding worked is they entered into a contract. Marriages were arranged. And the parents came together. There was a contract that was written up between the, the sets of parents, and they were betrothed to one another. At the point of betrothal, the groom would give the bride a gift to signify that they were engaged. He would then go away and prepare a place for them to live. The bride would make herself ready, not knowing that at any moment the groom would return, and then they would go away and be married. And during that time, as he was preparing, she would bring all of her bridesmaids together, and they would be waiting in anticipation for his return. We know then that before he came, the best man would run in before him and say, Make ready, the groom is coming, get ready for this marriage supper, this wedding. Now, weddings in those days lasted seven days, and when he would come, the, the bride and the groom would go away together for seven days, First time of intimacy, they had never had any physical contact before, and at the end of that would be this huge marriage feast, this great celebration of all their family and friends. Now we know that that's a clear picture of our Savior, because what did He do? We have entered into a relationship with Him. We are His bride, 
And you know what? He's given us a gift in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's given us the gift, the down payment on heaven to let us know we're his bride and we belong to him. And where is he now? He's gone away and he's preparing a place for us. But one day soon he's going to come back and he's going to call us home and we won't have a seven day honeymoon. We're going to have seven years in heaven during that tribulation. We're going to be with the Lord and then we're going to come back and rule and reign with him and have the huge wedding feast upon the earth. Well, that's what the Jewish wedding was like. It wasn't a three-hour ceremony. It was a seven-day event. And so at this wedding in Cana of Galilee, it says there that the mother of Jesus was there. Cana was about nine miles away from Nazareth where Jesus had grown up. And he goes to this wedding, and his mother's there, and that's significant because no doubt his mother must have been a, it must have been a friend of the family it must have been somebody that, that Jesus' family, when he was growing up, knew. And so she was invited. And then verse 2 says, Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Again, probably because of a relationship, his relationship with his mother or some relationship that he had with them. The Lord should be invited to every wedding, not just this one. Amen? So often people get married and... And when I do a wedding, and we've done a couple just in the last couple months here, it's a blessing. I love doing weddings. Weddings are wonderful because it's great to see that miracle of two becoming one, but it's also a blessing because it's such a clear picture of Christ and the church. You know, there would be fewer broken marriages if every couple recognized the divine significance of a wedding. And I love the fact that, that Jesus was not a recluse like John the Baptist. You notice that Jesus gets invited places all the time, and he shows up. You know, people invite him to their house for dinner. You see Jesus having dinner at people's houses. You see Jesus going to weddings. You see Jesus showing up at those kind of events. And he was very much a social person who reached out and loved people. And that's the way we ought to be as Christians. We're not called to be recluses up on a mountain somewhere, you know, waiting for God to come back. He wants us to be salt and light. He wants us to have an intimate relationship with those around us, to minister to them and to show them the love of God. Verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now I want you to see a few things here. And Jewish wedding feast, again, they lasted a week. It was very important that the groom and his family provided enough food for the guests for the entire week. And if they ran out of food, it was a disaster. This was like the worst thing you could do. You don't invite, if you invite, invite a bunch of people to your house and then you don't have any food, that's not good. You want to be cordial, especially at a wedding. Can you imagine inviting people to a wedding and then not having any food? And so in those days, it was even more significant. And so they had run out of wine and this was a disastrous thing. And Mary, who, who would have somehow been close to those who were married, might have been one of the hostesses of the wedding, comes to Jesus and says to him, they have no wine. Now, it's interesting to me that at this wedding, this picture of Christ and the church, there's no wine. And they come to Jesus to provide the wine. And we're going to see the significance of that in just a minute. But I want to point something else out here, too. That Mary comes to him and says they have no wine. Do you notice that she didn't come to Jesus and tell him what to do? Did you, do you see that? She didn't come and say, Jesus, here's what you need to do. I'm your mom. Let me, let me hook you up and tell you what you need to do. Now, sadly, many people today think that Mary is in a position of telling Jesus what to do. Here's the reality. Mary, it says here in verse 4, how does he address her? He says, woman. The word in the original language is gune, which basically is a polite way to address her, but at the very same time, it's a mild rebuke. 
It's a mild way of letting her and putting her in her proper place. And I want to say this. Mary was blessed among women, without a doubt. She was chosen by God to be used mightily by God. But let me say this. Is she anyway the co-redemptrix with Jesus Christ? Is she a dispenser of grace? Is she one worthy of prayer? Is she a conduit to Jesus Christ? The answer is absolutely not. Mary is a sinner in need of a Savior, just like every single one of us here. Amen? And so often we want to deify Mary. Well, you know what? Mary did not die on the cross. Mary is not the creator of the universe. Mary is not the Alpha and the Omega. She's blessed among women. She was used mightily by God, but she was a sinner in need of a Savior, just like every one of us. And Jesus makes it very clear here. She comes to the Lord, and she says, we have no wine. And he says, woman. He spoke to her in a kind way, but also in a direct way. Because you know what? Jesus was no longer submitted to Mary as his earthly mother like it was when he was a a small child. He submitted to his heavenly father. Mary is not the mother of God. Now, that might confuse you. She is the earthly mother of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is God, but she is not the mother of God in the sense that she somehow has supremacy over God. She's a created being. And so sadly is that people get their eyes off of Jesus and put their eyes on Mary. And if anybody could grieve in heaven, if it were possible, then Mary would be grieving. Can you imagine being in heaven and seeing people having parades and carrying your pictures, pictures of the Madonna and people worshiping at statues that point to you and getting their eyes off of the Savior? And we see here, she says, we have no wine. And you know what he says to her, woman... What does this concern me? My hour has not yet come. Now I want to see this too, that, you know, Mary, only twice do we see her in the entire Gospel of John. This time right here, and the next time is when she comes to Jesus, and actually it's not in John, it's in Matthew. She comes to Jesus with his brothers, and they come to approach him, and they tell Jesus, well, your family's outside, and he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. People who mistakenly think that Mary influences the Lord ought to take a look at her relationship with him while he was in the ministry here on earth. She came to him and he said, hey, who's my mother? My mother, who's my brother? Those who love the Lord, those who are submitted to my father, that's my family. Now again, he's not dissing his mom in a sense, but I think he he knew, of course he did because he's God, that there would be people that would begin to worship his mother. And he wanted to make it clear, look, a vessel used for my glory But we do not worship her. We do not pray to her. She can't hear your prayers, guys. You can't pray to the saints, because guess what? The saints were sinners just like you and me. You know, I hope if I get hit by a bus, you guys aren't praying to Pastor Dave. Amen? I mean, you don't pray to men. You pray to the Lord. We have one intercessor, and that's the man, uh, our Savior, our God, Jesus Christ. He's the only one that we pray through to the Father. We don't pray through anyone else. Then he says, my hour has not yet come. Do you know that Jesus was on a mission from the day he got here? Do you know that his hours were set? Do you know that his ministry was set? And he's saying, my hour has not yet come. And we're going to talk about why he said that, because it's all going to come together as we continue on through the text. So Mary's only other words here in the Gospels, what does she say in verse 5? Whatever he says to you, do it. I like that. Here's some godly counsel from Mary. Whatever he says, do it. What did Mary do? She pointed him to Jesus. She, you know, she said, whatever he says, you serve him. 
You honor him. It's his words, not mine. She comes to him asking a question. He gives her a gentle rebuke. He says to her, woman, in a kind way, but my hour has not yet come. She's not telling the Lord, informing the Lord, directing the Lord. And then she says, whatever he says, do it. Mary pointed to Jesus. We need to point people to Jesus like she did, not point people to Mary. Amen? And again, blessed among women, but we'd be wise to heed her words. Jesus took command and solved the problem, and Mary pointed to Jesus, not to herself. Jesus loved Mary, but he did not take direction from her. Again, only one mediator between God and man, and it's Jesus Christ. So he says, my hour has not yet come. They need wine at the wedding. There's Jesus. Let's move on to verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now the Jews had huge rituals of, of cleansing and purification. They were really into hygiene. And before they would do anything, they went through a lot of cleansing. Especially if they were near Gentiles, they didn't like that. And they would cleanse all of their utensils, they would cleanse everything. And so these water pots were used for these cleansing rituals. When people came to the wedding, that they would be cleansed before they went in to the feast. That the the utensils would be cleansed. And so these were cleansing implements. And they were filled, usually, with water. And so they were huge. Can you imagine a 20 or 30 gallons apiece? These things must have been heavy. 30 gallons of water, I don't know what that weighs. I could probably ask Dr. Webb, he could tell me. But I don't know what 30 gallons of water weighs, but I'm sure it's a lot. And you carry that around, the thing would be heavy. And these things were used, and then it was made out of stone. So this water of religious rituals can only cleanse a man's outward appearance. But it takes the blood, or this, in this case, the wine, to cleanse us spiritually. We're starting to see why this miracle took place the way it did. It's a wedding. Bride and the groom. The only way the wedding can happen, the only way is through the shedding of our Savior's blood. The only way that we can become His bride is through the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. They come to the wedding and there's water there that will cleanse them ritualistically, but the water's not sufficient. There must be the wine that points to the blood, because without the blood there can be no true marriage between Christ and His church, between us and Him. And so look what He says to do. He says to them, verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And man, I love this verse. You might think, why? But let me tell you why. They filled them up to the brim. Jesus said, I want you to go fill those water pots. Now, they didn't ask questions. Well, what do we need? We need wine, not water. What are we going to fill water pots for? And man, those are the heaviest and biggest pots we've got. Why do we got to fill those pots? Isn't there something else we can do? Now, that, does that ever sound like you, maybe, when the Lord's telling you to do something? It sounded like me before. The Lord gives us instruction, and well, isn't there an easier way? And instead, look what it says they did. They filled them to the brim. Man, I like that. These guys were enthusiastic about serving our Lord. And you know what? The word enthusiastic, in theos, means full of God. Did you know that? Enthusiastic, in theos, filled with God. You know what? I love to see people serving God to the brim. Remember what we're doing it for and who we're doing it for. At home, at work, in ministry. Not obeying, uh, you know, just out of contrition, but obeying enthusiastically, even though they didn't understand what the results would be. Man, don't you love Christians that love God and aren't ashamed of it? 
Amen? That have enthusiasm, not false enthusiasm, not rah-rah enthusiasm, but filled with the Spirit of the living God, and it's a get-to, not a have-to, to serve Him. It's a privilege to do things for God. And, you know, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but when I read that, I thought about Manny, you know? He greets you guys, your name's in the Bible. I mean, he's enthusiastic about God. And that's a good thing. We all ought to be enthusiastic about the kingdom of God. We get excited about the Niner game. We ought to get excited about our Savior. In fields, full of God. They filled it to the brim. I want you to go fill those stones. Yes, Lord. Went over and filled it to the brim. Didn't even know what the, the next step was going to be. And sometimes God will tell us to do things, and we don't even know what's next. He just wants us to obey in the first step so that we might see the second one. The Lord says, I want you to go, okay, yes, Lord, and do it with enthusiasm, because who are we serving? We're serving the ultimate master, and it's a privilege. And he said to them, draw some out now, verse 8, and take it to the master of the feast, and they took it. Now, again, they took it. Again, responded in obedience. Now, in those days, the water would have been too polluted to drink direct. And if they had taken water and given it to the master, these were servants, they'd have been in big trouble. Because the water was too polluted. Now they would use it for cleansing, but to drink they would always dilute their water with wine. You know, ten parts to one part, ten parts water to one part wine. Something to purify it and to cleanse it, okay? And so if you took straight water to the master and gave it to him to drink, you'd be in big trouble. But the Lord had told them, go and take this water to the master. And they said, yes, Lord. You know, there's a time when we have to do things when we don't even understand. The Bible talks about having the peace that surpasses all understanding, not the peace that comes from understanding. And there are going to be times when God wants us to, by faith, just step out and do what He's calling us to do. Not to say, well, Lord, show me the whole plan. I want to see the five-year outcome of this decision. Now, if I choose to do this, where am I going to be six months from now? And what kind of 401k plan does this pay, you know, Lord? And what's my, what, what kind of salary we got? You know, you got a company car with this gig? And, you know, Lord, what are you going to give me if I follow you? And too often we put conditions on serving the Lord. And I love this example. They filled it to the brim in theos, filled with God, full of God, enthusiastically serving Him. A get-to, not a have-to. And then he says, take the water, and yes, Lord, take the water, and they go and they bring it to the Master. Man, I love their example of obedience and serving our Savior. Verse 9. When the Master of the feast had tasted the water that was made, made, had been made wine and did not know where it came from, But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when his guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Jesus' first miracle was not a spectacular event known by all. It was an event of turning water into wine that is necessary for a wedding to take place. There must be the shedding of blood to bring a sinful bride to a holy God. There must be something that cleanses that, and that can only come through his shed blood, and that's what the wine's a picture of. But this was not a spectacular thing that everybody knew about. It was a miracle that was known about only by a few. But those few that knew about it were ministered by it, or to it, by it greatly. And God used it to touch their hearts. Only Mary, his disciples, and the servants truly knew what happened. Now, why did he make water into wine? I wrote down a few things here. One, It revealed His glory and increased His disciples' foundation of faith. Two, it shows that God gives us always what is better than what the world has to offer. When Jesus does something, it's the best. 
Amen? He's God. He gives us the best. You wait for the man or the woman God wants you to spend your rest of your life with, he or she will be the best. Amen? If you jump out in front of him and make your will happen, won't happen. You know, it's wait upon the Lord. Seek after him. He will give you what is best. Trust him. And so he gave them the best. The world gives the best wine at the beginning, and it only gets worse. And you know what? For the unbeliever, this is as good as it gets. It's only going to get worse. And I mean a lot worse. Amen? If you don't know Christ, it's not good. Now for believers, those who know God, it only gets better. He gives us the best to begin with, and it only gets better. You know what? I can't wait to get to heaven. Amen? Heaven's a real place, you guys. Did you know that? I mean, sometimes we forget. We get so involved in our lives here. Heaven is a real place. And we're going to spend eternity. We're going to see Jesus. And we're going to be around that crystal sea. And we're going to know Him as we are known. And we are going to be made perfect. And there's going to be no more death and no more pain and no more sorrow and no more war and no more suffering. And we'll be around His throne forever and ever and ever. How awesome is that? We get to know Him here and now. We get to serve Him here and now. And then we get to spend eternity in His presence in a mansion that He prepares for us. What an incredible blessing. What a great God that we serve. Now, I also noticed that the contrast between Moses and Jesus in that what was Moses' first miracle? Those of you who have been coming on Wednesday night, who remembers what the first miracle or plague that Moses brought upon Egypt? Who remembers? Somebody tell me. Turn the water into what? Into blood. And that was a picture of judgment. Moses is the law, representation of the law. The law brings forth judgment. The law reveals to mankind that we are sinners in need of a Savior. You open up the law and you see, I've fallen short. It's a mirror. The Bible says the law is a mirror. And it's a taskmaster that drives us to the cross. It shows us our need for a Savior. So Moses' first miracle was turning water into blood, a picture of judgment. And Moses being a picture of the law, Jesus is a picture of of grace. And what did Jesus do his first miracle? He turned water into wine. Not blood, but wine that represented his blood, and it speaks of his grace through his own sacrifice. The waters of religious rituals were not enough. Those sanctifying waters that were in the pot, they could not cleanse people enough to get them into heaven. And Jesus turned the water into wine. He made the marriage possible. He allows us to have that intimate relationship with Him. Moses brought the law, which brought conviction and revealed our sin. And Jesus Christ came and brought grace and allows us to have a a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Amen? Moses and the law pointed to our need for Jesus and His grace. And it's also a practical lesson that if we respond with enthusiastic obedience to the Word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit, God will be glorified and we will be blessed. Verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. This is the beginning of His signs, it says. So any of these, these wacko people that tell you, oh, well, Jesus between the age of 12 and 30 went to India and he was studying with the gurus and he did call all kinds of signs there. Stop it. He did not. All right? I mean, you hear this stuff all the time. People come up with all these things Jesus was doing. It says here, this is the beginning of his signs. This is it. This is the first miracle Jesus performed. That's what the Bible says. And we need to know God's word so when people come along with this counterfeit stuff, you go, no, 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 no. 
That's not what happened. Jesus Christ's ministry began at age 30, though God was, he is God and, and was from his birth, and we use mightily. Now, verse 12. After, he went, after that, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, his brothers and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Mary had other children. It says there, Jesus and his brothers. Same mom, different dad, right? Half brothers, right? But he had brothers. And people teach that Mary was a virgin all her life and she was, you know, assumed into heaven and she never sinned. That's not true. Other children. These are all rituals, like that cleansing water that's in that stone. We can't trust these, these rituals of men. They will not cleanse us. We must have the Word of God. We must have Jesus Christ. It's only through Him that we can be saved. So we see there, through this first miracle, many things that should point us to the fact that He absolutely is God, but also reveal why He came to restore the groom, the bride to the groom to make the marriage between us and Him possible. So we move on now to Jesus cleansing the temple. We go from His first miracle, and now we're going to see our Savior's first trip into the temple after His public ministry begins. We know, he, we know that He's been in the temple before. We know He's taught in the temple at age 12. But now He's coming in for the first time in the time of His public ministry, and you think, you wonder, what will Jesus do when He comes to the church? How is He going to respond Let's take a look, beginning in verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Remember, what is Passover again? Passover, those of you coming on Wednesday nights, we're going through the Old Testament. Passover is a, is a feast in remembrance of the deliverance from bondage in Egypt. They were in bondage in Egypt, all the plagues had come. Any of you have seen the Ten Commandments? You know what I'm talking about. That The last plague was that they were to take the blood of the firstborn spotless lamb and to put it in a hyssop branch and then to put that blood on the doorpost and on the mantle. And a picture of the cross. Jesus had a crown of thorns on his head and blood on his hands, blood on his feet, and there was blood also at the bottom of the doorpost. And anybody who had that blood on their doorpost, the angel of death would pass over. And so heinous was the cries of the people in Egypt that Pharaoh finally relented and let the Israelites go. So they would remember Passover, God's deliverance out of bondage, and it's a picture to us of the Passover. The fact that our sins, that we've been passed over because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and we've been delivered out of the bondage of sin and death as they were delivered out of the bondage in Egypt. So the Passover feast was something they would, they would gather together. And you notice that Jesus observes the Passover. Notice that he does keep the Old Testament law, not, but not the rules and rituals of men, but the law of the Word. He doesn't abide by the false laws created by the Pharisees, but he does honor the Old Testament law. Look at, and so it says, Jesus, and he comes, came to fulfill the law. Verse 14, And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep, and doves and money changers doing business. So he comes into the temple, and this religious market, as it had become, no doubt, probably started as a convenience for the travelers. Because people would come from far distances, some traveling many days or even weeks, to come to Jerusalem for Passover. And it would be a much more difficult journey if you were carrying you know, an oxen with you. 
or you know, carrying a sheep with you. So out of convenience, in the out, outer court of this market, they, uh, the Gentile court, they would have these animals where they could come and take this animal and purchase it and then use it for the sacrifice. Well, sadly, what may have begun as a convenience soon became very corrupt. And the priest began to fleece the people. When people would come in and to exchange their money, because they'd have to exchange their currency for Jewish currency to even be able to buy things, they would give them a really bad rate of exchange and they would rip them off. Then when they would go to buy the animals, they would charge them you know, four or five times the price because here they had traveled for weeks. They wanted to make sacrifice. They certainly were going to do it. So now they'd come in and they'd charge them exorbitant prices and the priests were basically ripping people off. The Pharisees and the religious leaders were stealing from people in the name of God. There's nothing new under the sun. Amen? We see many churches today that do the same thing. You know, they, they, they want you to call in and send them money. and You know what? And they're fleecing people in the name of God. You know, we don't pass an offering here. You know why? I don't want anybody to ever think that we want your money. I don't want you to ever feel like you should give out of contrition, like someone's forcing you to give. Please don't ever give because you feel like someone is forcing you to. We have a little box in the back, and if you feel led to give, you give. But I want you to give because you love the Lord. I want you to give in response to Him. Don't ever give because someone pressures you into it. And I go to the opposite extreme. You know, I don't want to pass an offering because I don't want you to feel... And these guys were fleecing the sheep. Now, how does Jesus feel about this? How do you think he feels about them turning his father's house into this place where people were getting ripped off? People who came to sacrifice to God and they're getting ripped off. How does our Lord feel about it? Look at verse 15. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. I guess we figured out how our Lord feels about people using his father's house like a den of thieves. Jesus cleans house. He comes in and he takes a whip. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the disciples walking in with the Lord into the temple? Can you imagine walking in behind him? You know, come and follow me. Yes, Lord. They saw water into wine. Wow, this is incredible. All of a sudden they get to the temple. They're thinking, this is going to be awesome. We're going to the temple with the Messiah. And then he grabs a whip and starts wailing on folks. Can you imagine? Whoa. And he comes in and he starts turning tables over. You know what? Our Lord does not, it grips him. He hates hypocrisy. He loves you and he loves me, but he hates religious hypocrisy. He hates things that that use his name to rip people off. I'll tell you what, if Jesus came to earth today, there'd be some folks getting whipped. Amen? There'd be some tables getting turned over. Because there are so many people who are using his name to fleece others. He whipped them. He turned the table over. He drove them out of the temple. The same Jesus who administered to Nicodemus and woman at the well. He'll heal the lame man, the blind man, Nicodemus' son. He'll feed the 5,000. He'll raise Lazarus from the dead. This God of love and grace and compassion would not tolerate religious hypocrisy, turning his father's house into a den of thieves. Look what it says. And he said to them, verse 16, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. A God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, but also a God of judgment for those who just are are hypocrites and harming his sheep. He loves you and I enough that when people are harming us or fleecing us, that he's going to get after them. 
And that's what he does here. You know, in Psalm 69.9, it says here in verse 17, it's a quote. It says, Then his disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. And again, this is a, a quote from a messianic psalm. Jesus was zealous. He declared war on the religious hypocrites. And again, if he came here today, you, can you imagine? There are churches today that deny the inerrancy of Scripture. What does that mean, Pastor? They deny that this is the Word of God without error. Let me tell you right now, 66 books, 40 authors, 3 continents, 3 languages, 1,500 years, 1 central theme, no contradictions. How's that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? And people attack His Word. And you know what? If Jesus were here today, He'd be in whipping up on folks who attack His Word. People deny the virgin birth. Jesus Christ was not born of a virgin. Jesus being whipping on those folks. Denying the resurrection. Promoting big tent religion. Now, I want to make this clear, and I want to say this in a loving way. I want you to know that the Lord loves everybody. But it is hypocrisy, and it grips the heart of God when people say, well, yeah, we want a big tent, and let's let the Muslims in. You know, they, don't, they deny that Jesus Christ is God, and they say Muhammad is the prophet, but, you know, as long as they believe in something, let's just... And, you know, the Hindus believe in reincarnation, but, you know, they, they try to have a good karma. Let's draw those people in. And the New Age movement that, you know, believes they'll become their own God one day, and the Mormon church that says we're going to be gods. And I, I want to say this. I'm not slamming people. What I'm telling you is that God hates hypocrisy. And he hates anybody that would take people away from the truth and give them a lie. And here's the reality. Satan does not show up at our doorstep with horns going out of his head and a pitchfork in his hand and fire behind him going, come to hell with me. I don't think anybody would go, right? I'm thinking, no, I'm thinking no on that one, right? But what he does instead is he brings something that looks good. It's, you know, well, it talks about God and it's, it, you know, and they're good people, you know, involved in it. And, man, that sounds pretty good. That's what Satan does. He brings something that's got a grain of truth in it, but it's a lie that will lead people away from God. And that's what these religious leaders were doing. They were fleecing his people, and he brought a whip in. And you know what? Again, we need to love those people. We need to share with them the love of God. But we should never, ever, ever water down the truth of God's Word. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Jesus Christ alone. The word of faith movement. The Lord would be bringing a whip after those folks. What do they say? Oh yeah, you know, the Lord wants you to, you got to have faith and face a movable object and you demand and tell God what he needs to do. Mary wasn't telling the Lord what to do and we shouldn't be telling him either. Amen? We don't command God and tell him what to do. God doesn't need Pastor Dave's input. Amen? I mean, we pray and say, Lord, let me know your will. Not my will, but thy will be done. And sadly, I know many people that get caught up in these false doctrines. We need to love them, and we need to take them back to God's Word. We don't need to be judgmental or self-righteous. God loves those people, and we should too. But these pastors and people that promote this stuff are going to face heavy judgment if there's no repentance before then. People that deny God-ordained marriage. Where's his first miracle at a marriage? And I want to say this. Promoting homosexuality as an alternate lifestyle is an abomination to God. I know we live in Santa Cruz and people say, oh, Pastor Dave, we need to be more accepting. We don't accept a lie. We, you know, does the Lord, I love people who are caught up in that, in homosexuality. I have no, I love them, I care for them, I want to minister to them. Do I say the lifestyle is okay? The answer is no. 
It's a choice. You're not born that way. You choose to be that way. It's not an alternative lifestyle. It's sin. And so too is it sin when men and women who are not married are living together. That's sin too. God created marriage. It's holy. It's sanctified. And we should never tear that down. Our Lord loves loves marriage. He loves the sanctity of marriage. Churches making excuses for their clergy being involved in in affairs and child abuse. You know, hey, you know what? If, If me as your pastor, if I ever did anything like that, I would hope you guys would show up in my house and tell me I'm fired. Amen? You know what? We love you, Pastor Dave, but you cannot be our pastor if you're not faithful to your wife. And you cannot be our pastor if you're abusing children. That's what's time out. I can't take you to a place I've never been. My relationship, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinful man in need of a, desperately in need of a Savior. Just ask my wife or my close friends, right? You've seen it. But the reality is that, that we cannot make excuses and say, well, yeah, you know, yeah, well, yeah, they, he's abused 75 children, but, you know, you know he's, he's, he's pretty effective in ministry. What? No, that doesn't work. You know what? Be holy, for I am holy. And we see all these excuses being made. And man, it just grips the heart of God. I think the Vatican, man, there'd be some whips being thrown down in that place right about now. Now, Jesus is also going to move on from there and predict his resurrection. But I want to say one last thing. Who remembers? Here's Here's a bonus question. Let's see who remembers this. What happened the day after Passover? There was a feast that began. It was seven days long. The feast of what? Who remembers? Anybody? Unleavened bread. Very good. Unleavened bread. And do you know that when the Feast of Unleavened Bread took place, what were the Jews to do? They would go throughout their entire house and make sure there was no leaven in their house. None. Why? Because leaven was a representation of sin. Isn't it interesting that at Passover, the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that Jesus went into His house and cleaned it out of all the leaven? Isn't that incredible how God's Word fits so perfectly? The Jews are running through their houses making sure there was no leaven, and Jesus was in the temple with a whip in His hand driving out all the money changers. There's no no, uh, coincidences in the kingdom of God. Verse 18, Jesus predicts His resurrection. So the Jews answered and said to Him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? By what authority are you whipping folks? Just who do you think you are coming in here with whips and turning the tables over? What kind of miracle are you going to perform to prove to us that you have the right to do this? I think it's interesting that they don't even say, why did you do this? Isn't that interesting? They just say, what right do you have to do this? I think they knew that what they were doing was wrong. Then they said, by what authority do you come in here with a whip? By what authority do you come in here turning tables over? What sign will you give? Verse 19 through 21. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. The Jews didn't understand what Jesus was saying because they looked at it from a physical point of view. The temple was a massive structure. Most of you know I just went to Israel. And they have, they have a, a 150th scale model of Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. And the temple was massive. Josephus said that there were 18,000 workers that worked on the temple for 46 years. How big do you think that temple was? When you look at this, when you look at this scale model, they have like a huge stadium, a theater. And the theater looks like it's about this big. 
The temple's this big. The theater's this big. The temple was massive. And, this, and they looked, and, they, and it was the most awesome structure to them. And sadly, though, they had begun to put their faith in the temple instead of what the temple represented. The temple was pointing them to the Messiah. And they were, had their faith in the temple, and he said, you know what? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They looked at it from a physical point of view and said, dude, you're crazy, man. We had 18,000 people working for 46 years to get this temple, and it's still not done yet. How in the world are you going to raise it up in three days? He wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about the temple. He was talking about his body. And so often we misunderstand Jesus when we look at things from a physical point of view rather than a spiritual one. We say, oh, that doesn't seem possible. We need to look with spiritual eyes. David and Goliath, one of my favorite stories you hear me talk about all the time. If David had looked from a physical point of view, he'd have said, dude, 11 foot 750. Guy is, looks, makes Shaq look like a pipsqueak, right? Guy's huge. Got a 200-pound coat of armor on. He'd have said, oh, no way. Well, physical point of view, outmatched. I'm, you know, I'm the milkman. I'm delivering cheese to my brothers. There's no way I can fight that guy. But if you look at it from a spiritual point of view, you say, you know what? This is a puny man against the creator of the universe. This guy's in trouble. And David went down, and we know what happened. He slew Goliath. You know what? We need to have spiritual eyes and realize the God that we serve. There's people you work with, you think, there's no way that guy's ever going to get saved. No way. Pray for him and watch God work, because he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. The word there for temple is naos, which means holy of holies. Jesus is the temple. And Jesus was speaking of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, I want to say this, and this may seem a little out of place, but we as a church today, we exist for three reasons. These are the three reasons that God put in my heart. And I wanted to share this with you. Because we're getting ready to see him. T- he's talking about his resurrection. And he's saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they didn't understand. And I want to make sure that we understand why Calvary Chapel of Santa Cruz, why do we exist? Why is the church here? Three reasons. One, to exalt and worship the Lord. When we come here, we come here to worship Him. Is He worthy to be praised, you guys? Amen? Isn't He worthy to be worshipped and praised and lifted up? We want to fix our eyes on Him. That's why we begin with worship every service. Let's draw into His presence and just tell Him how much we love Him. So we come, first of all, to exalt and worship the Lord. But then second of all, we come to edify the saints for building up the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what the Bible says I'm called to do. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Share with you guys the word of God. You become like Peter and like, well, like Philip and like Andrew from last week. When you fall in love with God through the word of God, you become contagious to the world around you. And how does that happen? Through edification, through the word, through prayer, through fellowship. That's why we need to gather together as a family to encourage each other in our walks with him. And then the the outpouring of that, the third thing is we evangelize the lost. Healthy sheep will beget healthy sheep. You know, some of you were here two years ago, and on a Sunday morning, or on Sunday nights back then, we had 15, 20 people. The church is growing not because of anything that man has done, but what God does through us is we just fall in love with Him, and then we become contagious, and we say, come and see. Amen? And the church grows. And we grow spiritually. In Acts chapter 6, the word of God spread and the number of disciples were multiplied. So what is it that makes the church grow? The word of God. It's the power of God. It's the word of God. Not the signs and the wonders, but God's word. Verse 22. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said to them, that, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. 
Jesus shared this truth with them, and they didn't understand it. But after the resurrection, after they saw him again, they said, oh, now I understand what he was talking about back in Jerusalem on Passover when he brought the whip of cords out, that he would be raised up on the... And I understand now. I understand. And you know, the more I study God's word, and the more time I spend with the Lord, the more and more he reveals truth to me, the more I understand who he is. But I, the more I know him and the more I know his word, the less I realize I know. You don't understand what I'm saying? The more, I, the more I walk with God, the more I realize how little I know. What a nothing I am compared to Him. And you know what? They began to understand after His resurrection, they heard the words that He had spoken. God's word does not return void. Lastly, now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs which He did. So many believed when they saw the signs and the miracles. They saw the signs and said, Oh, Wow, there's something special about him. He turned water into, you know, he, he did miracles. He did miraculous things. Wow, there must be something special about him. So they came to him because of the signs and because of the wonders. How did he respond? But Jesus did not com- commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of men, for he knew what was in man. Jesus was not committed to them because he knew their hearts. You know what, guys, can I talk to you? The Lord knows who you are really. We can put on games in front of people and we can pretend to be something we're not, but the Lord really knows what's in here. You can come to church every week and we can play Christian and you know what? God knows who we are in our hearts and we can't fool Him. You can fool Pastor Dave, you can fool men, you can fool your co-workers, you can fool your neighbors, but you can't fool God. God knows who you are. And these men came to him, and they were crying out, saying they believed in him, but he knew that they were coming for one reason. They were coming because of the signs. They were coming for the signs and the miracles. And you know what? He said, I will not commit myself to you. People still come today seeking it. It's a flimsy faith that's based on feelings. Paul said the Jews come seeking a sign. Faith is not based on what Jesus does. It's based on who Jesus is. Amen? Our faith is not based on what He does, but who He is. He's God. And that's what our faith is based upon. You know, people will come and do miraculous things in Jesus' name, and He'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Amen? And so, it's not based on the miraculous and the signs. It's based on the Savior. And so, He knew their hearts. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And we get to know Jesus through His Word. Come to Jesus because He's God. He's Lord. He's Creator. He's the only means of salvation because He first loved you. Don't come to Him because you're looking for a miracle. You know, the greatest miracle of all is when He takes a sinner and He turns him into a saint. Amen? Isn't that the greatest miracle there is? Because He did it all. He doesn't turn me into a saint because I do a bunch of good works and try. He does it because He loves me and He paid the price for me. If the worship team will come back up. So in review, as we prepare for communion, in this morning's chapter, we saw Jesus perform a miracle, water into wine. It brought joy to those at the wedding feast. It's a picture of His coming sacrifice upon the the cross, restoring sinful man back to holy God. But then Jesus also turned over the tables of the money changers in the court of the Gentile while He was rebuking religious hypocrisy. I want us to see something real quick as we get ready to take communion. There's an application from this chapter for communion this morning. When you come to the table this morning of communion, 
Remember, it's a joyous thing that that water was turned into wine. It's a joyous thing that Jesus suffered and died that we might have eternal life. You know, if you're here this morning, by the way, we don't have church membership because the Bible doesn't talk about it. You show up, you're a member. That's how it works. If you're a Christian and you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you're part of His family. We're all family. That's how it works. You just, your communion's for you today. If you don't know the Lord, well, communion's really not for you because communion is for those who've given their life to Jesus Christ because it's a picture of what He's done for us. He suffered and died that we might have eternal life. But I want to say this, that notice that the wine brought joy. And communion should bring joy. But I also believe that communion should bring reflection. Because he sat at the table and turned water into wine, but then he turned over the tables in the temple of the money changers. And you know what? I believe that as we get ready to take communion, that we need to examine our own hearts and say, Lord, is there hypocrisy in my life? Lord, are there areas where you need to turn some tables over in my life? are some things that need to change, Lord. And you know what? You come to Him with a confessing heart, and the Lord will forgive you. He's gracious and just. He's already forgiven you. You're going to heaven. That won't change. But the good news is that He wants to continue to have that sanctification work in our lives, to conform us more and more to His image. So in a minute, we're going to start playing some music. And here's how we do communion. Just come on up as soon as He starts playing music, and just take the elements, and go sit back. You can, you can take it by yourself. If you have family members here or friends you want to take communion with, you can do that. But I want to encourage you, take a few moments and thank God for what He's done, but then reflect in your own heart. Say, Lord, is there any area of my life that needs to change? The Bible says if you take communion and you have, you have something against your brother, just leave it there and go and, and seek your brother's forgiveness before you do it. If there's areas in your life where you need forgiveness, seek that first. Say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, conform me. Lord, show me areas where it needs to change. And then take communion and then, and then we'll, we'll just take, they'll play a couple of songs. But just take a moment and then go ahead and take communion and then afterward I'll come up and we'll close in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, as we come to this communion table that it is with great joy as we remember your death upon the cross, that you paid the price for us, that we could be a part of your family. But Lord, I pray it also would be a time of reflection, examining our own hearts, Lord. I pray you'd examine mine. Lord, just reveal to me the areas that need to change, Father. Areas where I'm, I've held back from you, Lord. And Father, our struggles, Lord, we just bring those to your table today. Lord, ask, Lord, just for your forgiveness, for your strength, for your mercy. So Lord, just inhabit this time of communion, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Mm-hmm.